I wasn't brave because I wasn't, uh, wasn't frightened. Now, she was scared, and yet she did it nevertheless. Well, therefore, she was brave. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. I never really became an actress. I just walked on the set, knowing my lines, and took it from there. Welcome to episode one of Yas Queen, the women's history podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Cuthbertson. Throughout my life, I've been inspired by women, ranging from the fictional like Princess Leia and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, to the women that shaped our world like Marie Curie, Queen Zenobia of Palmyra, and Billie Holiday. To start the series, I want to talk to you about a woman who has fascinated me for my entire life, Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, as Scots, we're all guilty of having fallen in love with the myth of Mary at some point or another. The tragic queen, thrown from lover to lover, captured and executed by her jealous cousin, Queen Elizabeth. That's the shortbread tin story of Scottish history. Thanks to Walter Scott, Queen Victoria and the tourism industry, Scottish history is often viewed as this romantic affair, full of tartan and tragedy. Think Braveheart, but with more fainting damsels and crying highlanders. It couldn't be farther from the truth, but I'm not here to tell you everything that's wrong with Braveheart. I'm here to talk to you about Mary. She wasn't a tragic damsel, a political pawn, or even the manipulative shrew that certain periods of history have painted her as. She was a keen, astute, and charismatic young queen who for a time held together a country broken by political upstarts and religious fundamentalists. For someone as complicated as Mary, we need to start at the beginning. The problem with that is that there are too many places that could be thought of as the beginning. So let's jump to the summer of 1542. James V and Mary of Guise sat upon the throne of Scotland. They were both eager for a child, James more so for an heir, as he already had three illegitimate sons and their first two legitimate children had died in infancy. James was 30 and Mary was 27. She said they were both young enough to produce many heirs and she was optimistic that her current pregnancy would produce the heir that James so desperately wanted. The previous year in 1541, James's uncle Henry VIII was adamant that James join him in casting aside the Catholic faith. James's own clergy, Fearful that he would eventually take up his uncle's cause, refused to allow this and offered to finance a war should it come to it. As you can imagine, Henry didn't take this well at all. He mounted an army in the north, seeking to bring the Scots to heel as he believed they had broken their ancient vows to England. By the 24th of November 1542, Mary of Guise was at Linlithgow Palace in the last stages of her pregnancy. James's forces met the English at Solway Moss, just south of the Scottish border, and they were quickly routed, and James fled like a thief in the night back to Scotland. This was the end for James. He was distraught, humiliated in defeat, and his health quickly declined. He made a short visit to Queen Mary at Linlithgow, and then left for his favourite retreat, Falkland Palace, where he quickly became bedridden and beyond hope. He spent his time lamenting his defeat, the deaths of his legitimate heirs, or with the curtains drawn in complete darkness and silence. It was a harsh and brutal winter, and on a stormy day on the 8th of December, a messenger rode from Linlithgow bearing the news that the Queen had given him an heir, a daughter. Those around him who attended to him during his ill health had hoped the news might boost his spirits, but he was perhaps too far gone and bitterly remarked the famous semi-prophetic line, Farewell, adieu, it came way alas, it'll gang way alas. Six days later, James was defeated by his illness and his new daughter, Mary Stuart, acceded to the throne of Scotland. Visitors and tourists to Mary's life will visit that room in the now ruined Linlithgow Palace and perhaps think of the young Mary in her mother's arms. They might look through the broken wall where a window once stood and over the lonely loch and think of the trials and tragedy that awaited this young infant, but no one at the time could have possibly imagined the life that lay before her. This was a difficult time for Scotland. They were facing a long minority and minorities rarely go well. 
Rumours, as they often do, spread throughout England and Scotland that the infant was weak, frail and unlikely to live. Rumours had reached the ears of Henry VIII that stated that the young Queen of Scots had died. A rumour even spread throughout Scotland that she was actually a boy. Whether there was a grain of truth to the rumours of Mary's ill health, they were quickly put to rest when ambassadors and emissaries visited the infant queen and saw that she was in fact in perfect health. Soon, the question of who would reign during Mary's minority was at hand. I could do an episode of a different podcast purely on the subject of who would become governor, but it's up there with Game of Thrones in terms of names, twists, exiled nobles, secretly signed articles and claimants. So we'll skip to January 1543 when the Protestant Earl of Arran, next in line to the throne, became governor of Scotland over the pro-French, pro-Catholic Cardinal David Beaton. The next question for all involved was, who should the infant queen be married to? The first and most obvious choice was Henry's son, Edward VI, who was five years old at the time. I'm not one for thinking of the what-ifs of history, but if this marriage had gone ahead, we might know Mary completely differently, as the Queen who would unite the thrones of Scotland and England. Maybe she would have had a happy marriage, but then, the Tudors weren't exactly known for happy marriages and I can't imagine the court of Henry VIII to be the most joyful of places. Nonetheless, the Treaty of Greenwich was signed, which stated that when Mary reached the age of 10, she would marry Edward and move to England under the watchful eye of Henry VIII. Should the marriage fail to produce an heir, then the union would be dissolved. Henry wanted to end Scottish relations with France. It was a stipulation of the treaty, and shortly before Mary's coronation in 1543, two trade ships en route to France were impounded by Henry's navy, which did not sit well with the regent. Mary was crowned at Stirling Castle on the 9th of September 1543 in a very low-key ceremony, almost like an afterthought. When the Treaty of Greenwich then came before the Scottish Parliament in December of that year in an act of defiance against Henry's aggression, they rejected it and sought to restore the old alliance between Scotland and France. Henry VIII then began a military campaign known as the Rough Wooing, which was designed to force Scotland to allow Mary's marriage to his son Edward. It resulted in a period of constant upheaval for Mary. She would spend the next five years of her life moving from castle to castle while violence, bloodshed and chaos surrounded her. By 1547, David Beaton had been murdered, Henry was dead and the Scots had suffered a catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Pinky Cluch. Despite Henry's efforts, his rough wooing failed miserably, but Scotland was left in shambles. Many of the nobles who had survived the Battle of Solway Moss, whose parents had survived the Battle of Flodden a generation before, were defeated or captured. In desperation, they turned to the French for help. King Henry II and Catherine de Medici proposed a marriage between Mary and their son Francis, which was eventually agreed by the Scottish Parliament on the 7th of July 1548. If you feel like I've maybe fast-forwarded a bit through that, I have. Again, this period is rife with political intrigue, skirmishes, deceit and broken promises, but I want to keep the focus on Mary. Later that month, the French galleys arrived in Scotland at Dumbarton and Mary, after a tearful goodbye with her mother, departed for France with a close retinue of nobles and her half-brothers, the illegitimate sons of James. She was five years old, and despite the separation, she was apparently in high spirits throughout the voyage. She was one of the only people on board not to suffer from seasickness, and she didn't seem bothered by the stormy weather that followed them from Dumbarton, and she even poked fun at the others for their sickness. It's easy to understand. She spent her entire life being ferried from castle to castle for safety, while politics and violence surrounded her. Perhaps it barely faced her, or perhaps she was all too aware of what was happening. In any case, France would prove to be a different world altogether for her, and those in her retinue, despite their seasickness, were excited about their life ahead in the French court. Mary's arrival in France would see her thrown into that romantic light that many see her in today. 
the five-year-old queen having left the barbarous nation of Scotland for the glowing French court, with all the charm, elegance and grace expected of a young queen, would become almost like a heroine to the French artists. She was the subject of poetry, music, literature and art during her time in France. But she wouldn't arrive at court immediately. She would find herself in the care of her maternal grandmother, Duchess Antoinette de Guise. She was everything you would expect of a noble matriarch. Think Olena Tyrell from Game of Thrones, and you have a rough idea. She was a strong presence in the affairs of her family, including her daughter's marriage to James V. She was shrewd, somewhat businesslike, and known for her dry and cutting wit. When a group of nuns approached the Duchess for funds for building work, she replied, Build up your morals and I will build your pieces. However, she was keen to cut off all ties to Mary's Scottish roots. She demanded the removal of most of her retinue. Only Mary's nurse and governess would remain. She would see to Mary's wardrobe, her education, and would prepare her fully for her role as the Queen of France. Between her Guise relatives, the tutors, nurses, and interests of King Henry and Catherine de Medici, Mary's life for the next 13 years would be one of careful and almost constant supervision. Mary's first introduction at court was of course to her future husband Francis. He was a sickly child, stunted from birth, pale and hunched. There was understandably a lot of concern over whether Mary, young, joyful and healthy, would take to the ailing Francis, but those worries did not last long and they took to each other almost immediately. Some remarked that it was as if they had been friends for their whole lives. She only spoke Scots at this point, but despite this, they communicated as children do, and it wouldn't be long before Mary's French was spoken with such grace and elegance that it would be the language she would speak and write in for the rest of her life. Her life at court would be something of a private bliss. Removed from the growing religious troubles of Scotland and England, she would enjoy an almost dreamlike childhood, so different from the future she would endure. She wouldn't just learn French, but Italian, Spanish and Latin, and it's thought even some Greek. She played the harp and was so adorned with dresses, shoes and servants that every move from palace to palace would be more than a chore for the royal household. In September of 1550, Mary of Guise made a visit to the French court to see how her daughter was faring. She herself had become lonely and isolated in Scotland. Mary was so overjoyed at this news that she wrote to her grandmother to express her desire to study hard and to be everything that she believed her mother to be, and believed her mother expected of her. Mary saw her mother as a strong and valiant queen, and she was keen to do everything she could to impress her. The two Queen Marys would spend every chance they could together. Mother would observe daughter in her studies, they would share stories of life in the French court and life back in Scotland, they would dance and sing and read together, spending every moment they could, their love never having weakened in that three year separation. But Mary of Guise's duties in Scotland could wait no longer and in 1551 she set sail away from her homeland, away from her daughter, over the sea to Scotland once more. By 1554, Mary of Guise had become Regent of Scotland and the young Queen of Scots began to take an interest in Scottish affairs. She would often write to her mother to hear the news and give her own opinions of how things should be managed, and she was after all the Queen. She would even send back blank letters with her signature and seal so that they could be used, as was written on the blank pages, for administrative purposes. And this keen interest in politics would see her do well in the French court over the coming years. However, as the years progressed, Mary's betrothed, the Dauphin Francis, was showing signs of sullenness and would shirk his education in favour of the joys of court life, hunting, hawking and riding. While it would be easy to write this off as growing pains, it was quite the opposite. The sickness for which the young prince was known was more and more obvious as he aged. He had barely grown, he was pale and suffered from a chronic respiratory infection. He was often difficult, but his affection for Mary continued, and apart from his mother Catherine, Mary seemed to be the only person whom he showed any real affection towards. He and Mary would steal away into corners to kiss, hold hands, and talk the nights away. It's not really surprising that while he failed to grow, Mary had grown tall and more beautiful as the years passed, and despite her own ill health on occasion, her charm and grace flourished as well. Mary saw in Francis a companion. Whether she saw Francis as a romantic companion is a question that's been asked by many. Whether it was out of duty, or Mary's own love of being loved, she never protested Francis' affection. It was an exciting time for both, their union would see them as king and queen of both Scotland and France under one crown. 
Catherine de' Medici had impressed upon Mary the importance of dynastic union, that a queen, as well as a politician, must put family and duty above all concerns. The wedding of Mary and Francis took place on April the 24th, 1558, at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, when Mary was 15 and Francis was 14, in the grandest spectacle of pageantry that you would expect from the French court. There was music, banners, and even a stage built so that the people outside the cathedral could see. Mary wore a beautifully embroidered dress of white and gold thread, adorned with a huge train. She wore diamonds around her neck and a crown encrusted with jewels, which, in an ironic fashion, was painfully heavy. The wedding ceremony was followed by a huge banquet and balls and celebrations that lasted for days. There were celebrations in Scotland as well, even the canon of Monsmeg, which to this day still rings in the new year, was fired in celebration. Mary was entering perhaps the most joyous period of her life. Things, however, began to change. In September of 1558, the throne of England passed to Elizabeth I, and until Elizabeth had heirs of her own, Mary now held the prospects of the crown of Scotland, France, and England upon her head. But things were more complicated than that. Elizabeth, by the standards of Catholicism, was a bastard, and as such, Mary was considered throughout the Catholic faith to be the true heir to the throne of England. King Henry II declared Francis and Mary as King and Queen of Scotland, England and Ireland in a political move that would haunt Mary until her death. However, these claims were soon cast aside and in 1560 Elizabeth seemed to forgive Mary and Francis, saying that these designs upon the throne were the aims of everyone around them, Mary and Francis both still being too young to understand the weight of their claims. In June of 1559, Tragedy would strike the bustling French court. King Henry was injured in a jousting accident, taking splinters in the eye and throat, and he eventually died on the 10th of July, leaving Francis and Mary as King and Queen of France. While Mary seemed to take to her courtly duties with a fearless vigour, the same can't be said for Francis, who, having never really shown a joy for learning, was not ready to accept the full responsibility of being king. He was often absent from court, he preferred to hunt or go hawking, and would leave the running of the kingdom to those he thought most up to the task. Francis's pathetic inability to rule aside, things were growing darker for Mary. Insurgents had taken Edinburgh, and Protestantism was now the true faith of Scotland. She feared for her mother, and worried about what her own French Catholic upbringing would mean should she ever return to Scotland. However, it would not be long before the tragedy for which Mary is so known would strike again. Her mother died on the 11th of June 1660 after months of a dreadful illness. The French nobility kept the news from Mary for 10 days, knowing how it would affect their queen. Despite their nine year separation, Mary was so heartbroken that she suffered a severe nervous breakdown, but she wouldn't be down for long. Such was her love for her mother and her devotion to her duty that she began to learn everything of the Scottish political scene, all while being guided by Catherine de' Medici. There are stories that the two despised each other, but whatever their private feelings were, in public they were a force to be reckoned with. While Francis was off hunting, Catherine and Mary essentially shared the throne, and Catherine became a second mother to Mary. But as you've come to suspect by now, all was not well for long. Francis had become seriously ill. He was suffering from a burning fever, headaches and violent sickness. For weeks, Catherine and Mary rarely left his side. Despite all efforts, including an operation on his brain, the young King of France died on the 5th of December, one month before his 17th birthday. Mary entered into a deep and very private grief. It's thought by some that she was lamenting her own political aspirations, but she had just lost her companion, the young boy she had grown up with, who despite his own personal failings, had loved her deeply. They'd spent 12 years together in companionship, and with her mother passing only six months before, Mary was stricken by grief. She locked herself in a room draped in black that bore only two torches for light, and grieved for her lost husband. Since the death of Mary of Guise, Scotland had now been without an official ruler for six months. Mary's half-brother, James Stuart, the Earl of Moray, formed a government with the man hailed as bringing Protestantism to Scotland, John Knox. I personally give him far less credit and think he was just a loud and ambitious upstart who was around the right people at the right time. Nonetheless, the pages of history remember him as Scotland's Protestant saviour. Mary's grief wouldn't contain her for long, not much longer than the 40 days required of a French queen. In fact, 
It's here we begin to see Mary as a politician. She began to develop her own interests in what should happen. Should she remarry? Should she return to Scotland and take up her throne? Mary earnestly sought to be a wise ruler and accepted that the only way to do so was to surround herself with the right people, heed their advice and act upon the best course of action. Her wisdom and strength, far beyond that of an 18 year old, was obvious to all around her. She wrote to the Estates of Scotland to declare her intent to return and hoped it would be at the request of her subjects, but Mary was pursuing other interests as well. A possible marriage had been arranged with Don Carlos, the next in line to the Spanish throne. He wasn't much better than Francis. At 16, he was epileptic, hunched, and suffered from ill health more than Francis ever seemed to. Why would Mary, freshly widowed, even consider a relationship with this man? Well, her interests were purely dynastic. To be Queen of Spain, a Catholic nation with ties in France and Scotland, would put her at the head of Europe's most powerful dynastic union. While these negotiations were ongoing, she was visited by Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Now you might know that name as Mary's second husband, but at the time he was nothing more than Mary's first cousin and fellow claimant to the English throne. It was during this visit that a possibility of a second marriage to this handsome 16 year old was floated before Mary. It would strengthen her claim to the English throne after all, but she didn't bite. Her own political aspirations at this point were too important to her. Her possible marriage into Spanish royalty or her own ambitions to return to Scotland would take precedent. Her marriage negotiations ultimately failed though, and not without the help of her mother-in-law Catherine. Catherine was worried about how Mary's relations would affect her own daughter's marriage in Spain and sought to break down the negotiations. And with that marriage ruled out, she was left with two choices. She could sail home to Scotland, or she could have, by all rights, stayed in France, enjoyed her time at the French court until someone more suitable came along but instead she chose the adventurous route of returning to her homeland. And so she did. On the 14th of August 1561, she set sail from Calais to make the 600 mile journey to Scotland. However, as she stood on that deck, her courage and sense of adventure left her. She fell into fits of tears, and who can blame her? Her home of 13 years and all that she had come to know and love was now behind her, and in front of her was uncertainty, political upheaval, religious discourse and a nest of vipers all too ready to see the young queen fall. As the galley sailed out of the harbour, Mary clung to the rail and looked out at her former home and said, Goodbye France, my love, I do not think I will ever see you again. Fog loomed over Mary's journey, and it was especially thick on the day of her arrival in Leith on the 19th of August. John Knox saw it as an omen. He wrote, The very face of heaven, the time of her arrival, did manifestly speak what was brought unto this country with her, to wit, sorrow, dolor, darkness, and all impiety. Now, if you've ever been to Scotland, fog isn't that big of a deal. If it were raining omens every time it was foggy or dark and stormy, there'd be nothing left of Scotland but a hole in the ground, so it speaks more of Knox's disdain for a foreign Catholic queen than it does for any godly omens. Nonetheless, the sadness that had gripped Mary on her journey over the sea had now faded and her sense of adventure had returned. She was keen to see her country once more as its true queen and meet her subjects. As she stepped onto Scottish soil for the first time in 13 years, she did so with her head held high. And the common people were eager to see their young queen returned. She was tall, graceful and beautiful, everything they had imagined her to be, and she could speak with them once more in her native Scots. She was taken to Holyrood, where she would take up rooms in the royal apartments there. Her first night, as you might expect, was not restful. Not out of fear, mind you. She was kept awake by 600 minstrels and singers who, according to sources, played so terribly and out of tune it must have grated on the music-loving queen. However, I wonder if, on this first night in a mostly foreign land, it had been a comfort to her. Indeed, in the morning, she thanked them and told them it had been so good that they should continue for nights to come. Scotland would be a marked change from France. It was colder, far more sparsely populated, almost medieval and castles and palaces the like known in France were few, far between, and much smaller than what Mary was used to. The nobility that Mary would now have to contend with were somewhat of a nightmare. 
with many of the nobility decimated at Flodden a generation before, and more recently at Solway Moss and Pinky Cluch, it was a younger generation, not used to rule, devoid of money and morality, and so interconnected it must have seemed impossible for Mary to place herself amongst them. They would prove to be far more interested in self-promotion than in the larger picture of Scotland's progression on the European stage. Religion would be Mary's first rude awakening to the differences of France and Scotland. She had asked for mass to be observed in the Royal Chapel on her first Sunday, and as it did, protests were launched, and even vandalism. If this shook her, she didn't show it, and the following day, in what many view as her greatest political move, she issued a proclamation. She stated, the Protestant faith must be allowed to endure as the new faith of the Scottish people. But if there was a wish to remain Catholic and worship privately, then they should be allowed to do so. While this was viewed by most as a strong move on Mary's part, John Knox, in the most eye-roll-inducing manner, held a sermon the following week about the dangers of Mass and how it should not be allowed to continue. Mary, rather than take this lying down, decided to deal with this and invited him for what would be one of many talks. He saw himself as God-sent and sought to dominate Mary, but if you've learned anything of her by now, you can see that this is one of the many reasons their relationship was a terrible one. He saw the meeting as a battle, and he is the victor, not as an adult about to meet an 18-year-old ruler who had so far shown herself to be kind, just, and tolerant of the Protestant faith. He didn't like women, and forgive me while I roll my eyes once more, he wrote a book against Mary Tudor entitled The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. It's laughable to us now, but at the time his views were shared by many. A female ruler was weak, frail, and prone to the mercy of her femininity. And Mary attacked Knox for this and for his writing of the book. He conceded to the point of her sex, but refused to back down on religion, and they continued to be at an impasse for most of Mary's reign. The meeting didn't faze Mary, however. She was still being so well received by her subjects that John Knox seemed nothing more than a small prick in the side. She set out to tour her country, and while a short bout of ill health delayed her, she visited Linlithgow, Stirling, Perth, Dundee, St Andrews and Falkland Palace before returning to Holyrood on the 29th of September. Knox thought that this tour might have shown her that the Scottish people did not want Catholicism, but she remained firm in her stance. As time went on, the Scottish nobility seemed to tolerate Mary's Catholicism, even John Knox seemed to bend ever so slightly. She had done her part for the Protestant Church and faith, and when the Pope wrote to her asking her to take a more active stance in the protection of the Catholic faith in Scotland, she denied him. You see, Mary had her eyes on the bigger picture. Now that her country was somewhat more stable and the nobles pacified, she set her eyes once more on the throne of England and reconciliation with her cousin Elizabeth. By 1562, Mary and Elizabeth had entered secret negotiations regarding the subject of succession. The two spoke favourably of one another, and as they drew closer to meeting, in the most inconvenient way for Mary, one of her Guise uncles fired upon a group of Protestant worshippers in France, thus beginning a month-long fight between the Catholics and the Huguenots. Mary and Elizabeth's plans fell apart, and Elizabeth stated simply that for the time being, there would be no further discussions. When Mary heard this news, she reacted in a way that the Stuart monarchs and 19-year-olds were known for. She barred her bedroom door, broke down in tears, and lay in bed for the rest of the day. By 1564, Mary was 21 years old, and the importance of producing an heir was weighing on her, and to that end, once again finding a suitable husband. As you can imagine, a young queen known for her beauty, charm and wisdom shouldn't have had any problems finding a husband. Except, this is Mary, queen of the recently Protestant Scots, with Catholic family in Europe, Protestant lords she only so recently managed to calm, and a throne in England she so desperately wanted and needed the approval of Queen Elizabeth to get. She also needed someone who would be happy with the title of King Consort, because Mary wasn't looking to share power. Throckmorton, an advisor to the English throne, had joked that things would have been so much simpler if either Mary or Elizabeth had been a man, then they could just marry each other.
And while Mary still had her sights on the throne of Spain, it might have discounted her claim to England altogether. Elizabeth's own offer to Mary was her personal favourite, a Lord Robert Dudley. However, apart from being close to the English Queen, he had no prospects or money and his father had been executed as a traitor. While Mary might acquiesce to this to show herself pliable, to her it was no guarantee that following such a marriage, Elizabeth would grant Mary's request to be recognised as heir to the throne. But why was Elizabeth being so stubborn? Well, she explained to Mary that it was due to the way the English people had viewed her own ascension over Mary Tudor. The people are far more willing to praise a rising sun over a setting one. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the notion of Mary's cousin Lord Darnley appeared again, and it was in fairly suspicious circumstances. Darnley's family had been banished from Scotland in 1544 for their part in Henry VIII's rough wooing, and it was at Elizabeth's own request that Lord Darnley had been allowed to travel to Scotland. Some viewed it as a Trojan horse. The young man, aged close to Mary and with a strong claim to the English throne, would seem like a perfect candidate for her new husband. Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, was known in the English courts for his good looks, his gift with music, his love of hunting and sports, and his learned nature. Despite that, however, he was not intelligent. He was incredibly spoiled and viewed the world desperately through his own ego. He was interested mostly in the pursuit of pleasure and personal gain, but his outward good looks, his height, and even his gift for music might be enough to remove Mary from the political decisiveness of such a match and to look at him as a romantic companion as well. Mary met with him at Weems Castle in February of 1565, where she said he was the properest and best proportioned long man that she had ever seen. Romantic, right? And from then on, he barely left the Queen's side, even attending the wedding of a member of Mary's old French retinue to her English ambassador. It was here, noted by some, that while the couple seemed comfortable together, there was no passion for Mary beyond that of a common courtesy, and it became apparent that the interest in Lord Darnley was that of Mary the politician, not the romantic. But a sudden illness in Darnley while the couple were staying in Stirling Castle changed that. She rarely left his side, tending to his every need, and it was in this time as Darnley's nurse that Mary fell hopelessly and dangerously in love with Darnley. In April of that year, Mary sent word to Elizabeth of the news, hoping that she might finally grant Mary as the heir apparent to the English throne. But it was at this point, when Mary had fallen so desperately in love, that the honey trap of Darnley became obvious. Darnley, a strong claimant to the English throne, and a Catholic to boot, Elizabeth simply could not stomach such a match, and publicly denounced it as an attempt by Mary to seize the throne by force. Elizabeth sent an ambassador to dissuade Mary from this dangerous union, but she was so passionately in love that she would not hear counsel, however much in her best interests. Those around her and her advisors had noticed the change in Mary from the cautious and wise young queen to one driven purely by love and things did not bode well. The nobility of Scotland did not like Darnley, he was boisterous, brash and spoiled. But despite his outward appearance, to Mary he played the part of lover. He wooed her in the most traditional sense of the word, with poetry, music and charm. On the 19th of June 1565, they were married at Holyrood in a ceremony that paled in comparison to her French affair. Instead of a glowing white dress, she wore a black mourning dress, and while there were dances and feasts and celebrations in Edinburgh, Glasgow and Stirling, they were nothing compared to that of the French court. When the wedding ceremony ended and Mary and Henry stood before their onlookers as Queen and King of Scotland, the room was met with a stony and disapproving silence. But from that silence, Henry's father erupted, God save his grace. And so began the first rebellion against Mary from none other than her half-brother, James Stuart, Earl of Moray, who had governed the country following the death of Mary of Guise. He accused her of endangering the Protestant faith by marrying this Catholic, putting her position and the careful religious balance in danger of toppling. But she'd actually done quite the opposite. Mary, knowing all too well the importance of maintaining the stability of the new faith, had spent her time at court garnering the favour of the Protestant nobles, offering favours in exchange for support of her marriage. 
Mary quickly denounced her half-brother and his followers, branding them outlaws and seizing their estates. She set out another proclamation to the people to state that she had no intention of altering the religious practices of the people, but stressing once again the importance of her own private worship. She was a queen who understood the needs of the common people before her own nobles. The love of Mary and Darnley would be like a forest fire raging in the summer heat quenched by autumn rains. By August, Darnley was showing himself to be as strong a ruler as her first husband had been, more interested in hunting, drinking and whoring. He was also now constantly barraging Mary over the subject of crown matrimonial, which would see him recognised not as king consort, but as Mary's equal in power. Despite his desire for this, he seemed to enjoy hunting and spending money more. And when Mary was ill in November of that year, he was absent so frequently that she had a metal stamp made of his signature to save time while he was entertaining his pleasures. The seal was given to Mary's secretary, David Rizzio. He was a talented musician and more importantly for Mary, a great conversationalist. So when her secretary died in 1564, she gave the position to Rizzio over many more qualified nobles. This proved to be deeply unpopular, but Mary saw in him a loyal friend and advisor. In December, as Mary began to recover from her illness, she left for the Lithgow Palace, but it became apparent to her that this wasn't a mere illness she was suffering from, but pregnancy. Mary of course wanted a child, but by now her relationship with Darnley was so strained that her main priority was producing an heir, not becoming a mother. His constant absences while she was suffering a somewhat unpleasant pregnancy did nothing to rekindle her feelings. Darnley saw himself as king, and that was it. His spoiled nature inclined him to believe that people should follow him blindly, regardless, and this was creating enemies of the Queen. But not just that, the way Mary surrounded herself with people like David Rizzio at the expense of her own nobility was causing problems as well, and as they so often do, plots began to form. The nobility saw Darnley as a tool, both in a metaphorical sense and an offensive one. They planted the idea that Rizzio was Mary's lover, that the child Mary was carrying may not even be his own. Combined with Mary's continued refusal to name Darnley her equal, it was like a carelessly thrown match to gunpowder. On the night of the 9th of March 1566, Mary was suffering from ill health and the advancement of her pregnancy and held a small supper for friends in her private rooms at Holyrood. On a night of warmth, of friendly faces, games and joy, a coldness crept in, stealing all joy from the room. Darkening the doorway of her chamber was Darnley, followed by a group of Mary's nobility. The nobles began to rat against Mary and David Rizzio's relationship, and Mary was astonished, but more importantly furious to discover her husband to be no more than a snake in the grass. As the nobles advanced and Darnley stood aside, Rizzio clung to Mary's skirts, screaming and begging. Mary did her best to shield him, but a pistol was drawn on her, aimed at her unborn child, and Rizzio was dragged, kicking and screaming through the chambers of her apartment to the top of the stairs where his screams echoed down the tall spiral staircase as he was stabbed repeatedly between 50 and 60 times. Murdered brutally before her eyes by her nobility while her husband watched on, Mary had come to believe that she and her unborn child too were intended victims of the assassins. She should have been decimated, destroyed, having feared for her own life and watched her friend die, but she stood defiant. As the alarm bells in the city ended, as things settled and Darnley and the nobles took their leave, Mary cried, but only shortly. No more tears now, she said. I will think upon revenge. Rizzio's murder at the behest of her husband and at the hands of her nobles meant things were essentially finished between Mary and Darnley. She was beyond indifference to her useless, drunk and egotistic husband. She now hated him with every fibre of her being, but she did not let it show. After promising to pardon those responsible for Rizzio's murder, she concocted a plan to escape the palace under the cover of darkness, saving face for her husband, whom she knew she could not escape without. She charmed him, letting him in on just enough of her plan that he would comply. They stole out of the palace in the night, meeting at the grave of Rizzio and riding for freedom. However, from there, Mary and Darnley's relationship was one of a truce until their child was born, a cordial one, never speaking unless necessary, and always with the polite grace for one another. 
Their son James was born on the 19th of June at Edinburgh Castle and the kingdom rejoiced. Not least Mary, who now saw herself as an even stronger contender to the English throne over her barren cousin. Things for Darnley were less joyous though. Without crown matrimonial, he was now farther from true power than ever before as his new son would inherit before he could and any pretense of love between the young couple was gone. Darnley departed to enjoy the backyard pleasures to which he was accustomed to while Mary began a tour of the kingdom. In October of 1566, Mary took seriously ill. Most suspected she would not survive. Her health had been failing since the birth of James, and it took its toll while she rested in Jedburgh. She did not seem long for this world. Darnley himself was ill from suspected syphilis, but while Mary eventually recovered, Darnley did not. It was during this time that Mary sought to rid herself of the useless man and sought the advice of the Scottish nobility on how to do it. She contemplated divorce, but the risk to James's status as heir to the throne could not be compromised. She contemplated an annulment under papal rule, but her tolerance of the Protestant faith left her with little support there. She instead left the task to her nobles, who plotted darkly and in secret of how best to dispose of their idiot king. In a show of Mary's own compassion, she rode for Glasgow to bring Darnley back to Edinburgh in order that he may convalesce there. It was while this was happening that the nobility were concocting plans of their own on how best to dispose of their worthless king. Amongst those nobles was James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, who over the years had become a confidant of Mary's. Whether Mary had any true hand in what was to follow has been debated by historians. However, she did play a small role in it. It was essential to the nobles' plan that Darnley be returned to Edinburgh. On the night of the 9th of February 1567, while Mary attended the wedding of one of her servants, Darnley lay recovering in a small two-storey house in the church grounds of Kirklefield in Edinburgh. In the early hours of the morning of the 10th, rather than make the journey back to her chambers at Kirklefield, Mary retired to her apartments at Holyrood. All the while, Bothwell and his men gathered at the kirk to lay gunpowder in Mary's room, directly below Darnley's. While accounts of what happened from here vary, it's evident that Darnley was aware that something was happening below. In his weakened state, he looked out of the window and saw Bothwell's men, dressed in black, ferrying items into the house. He knew he was in danger, perhaps he knew it was hopeless. He made a daring escape with his servant before an explosion rent the silent air of the churchyard. Running out into the yard in a desperate panic, Bothwell's men descended on him and chased him into the orchard, where his body would be found naked and having been smothered. Whatever truly happened that night, Darnley was dead. Mary was rid of her wretched husband, but it set in motion of a chain of events that would shape the rest of Mary's life. Rumours were rife following the assassination of Darnley. Some suspected Mary, but most suspected it to be the work of Bothwell. Mary set about publicly to bring those responsible to justice, though in the case of Lord Bothwell, Mary almost seemed to make an exception. It would be the servants, those lesser nobles involved, that felt the noose of justice around their necks. Darnley's father sought justice for his son and demanded that Bothwell be brought to trial before Parliament and Mary agreed to this, though whether out of loyalty to a servant who had shown her the same or gratitude for the freedom from Darnley, she refused to allow Darnley's father to gather evidence and Bothwell was acquitted. Now free from suspicion but not in the eyes of Scotland, Bothwell set his eyes upon the newly widowed Queen and the throne. Mary outright refused to marry him, even at the behest of some of her most trusted nobles. She had said there was too much scandal surrounding Darnley's death and a marriage to his supposed murderer would bring ruin upon her. After all the stress of plots and murder, Mary rode in secret for Stirling to visit her son James, arriving on the 21st of April. She spent much of the following day playing happily with her 10-month-old son, blissfully unaware that this would be the last time she saw the infant prince. She set out for Edinburgh on the 23rd of April, and while riding the following day, Mary and her small retinue were greeted at the Bridges of Almond, a mere six miles from Edinburgh, by Bothwell and a troop of 800 men. Bothwell advanced towards the Queen, placed a hand on her horse's bridle, and said that it was too dangerous for her to return to Edinburgh, that he would take her to the safety of his castle in Dunbar. Despite protestations from her travelling companions, Mary agreed to go. She abhorred violence, and the thought of being the source of bloodshed was enough to convince her to go as Bothwell's captive. They made the 40 mile journey to Dunbar Castle, Mary entirely compliant, but not without her own scheme. 
She sent a servant in the night for Edinburgh to warn her nobles of what had happened and that trouble may follow. For Bothwell, in a truly bizarre yet entirely characteristic move, he believed abducting the Queen would somehow turn the public eye away from Darnley's murder, and here, in the cruelest fashion of Bothwell's character, he would force Mary to have no choice but to marry him by raping her. She was a devout Catholic, and at the time, she would have been left with no choice but to go ahead with the marriage. There are some that say that this had been Mary's plans all along, that she'd in fact had an affair with Bothwell while still married to Darnley. I can't see it however, during most of the time prior to Darnley's death, Mary was desperately ill. Mary's marriage to Bothwell took place on the 15th of May under Protestant rites, barely four weeks from her abduction and three months since Darnley's murder. If Mary's marriage to Darnley paled in comparison to France, then this ceremony wouldn't even register. There were no celebrations, no balls or banquets, just a wedding, Mary once more in a black dress. While Bothwell enjoyed the rise of a dictator, the nobles were already plotting his end. Mary was bereft. She was only 24 years old, yet this queen, who had been so wise and gracious in her youth, had lost control of everything. She deeply regretted her Protestant wedding ceremony, especially to a man who was no more suited to rule than either of her previous husbands. She was now caught up, uncontrollably, in the political ambitions of those who played the game far more ruthlessly than she ever could. Such was Bothwell's paranoia and lust for power that Mary was now under his constant guard. Her chamber door was watched by Bothwell's men day and night and she could not speak to her nobles on any matters of state without Bothwell being present. She was a prisoner of his lust for power. While Darnley could never convince Mary to offer him crown matrimonial, Bothwell took it in every way he could in all but name. There became almost an acceptance of this situation by Mary. Scotland was so divided that single-handed rule seemed impossible. Indeed, I find it hard to believe that any monarch, regardless of Mary's circumstances, could have fared much better in the political climate of Scotland at the time, certainly not her husband's. In her defences to Queen Catherine de' Medici and Queen Elizabeth, she replied, as we would expect her to, that she has found herself in this impossible situation and they must now all make the most of it. But there would be no time to make the most of it. Rebellion was looming and in June, when Mary and Bothwell sought rest at Bothwick Castle to the south of Edinburgh, they found the castle surrounded by rebels. Whether in a testament to Bothwell's character or a decision reached between he and Mary, he fled the castle, leaving Mary to withstand the siege alone. Once again, Mary found herself in an impossible situation, but as she did the night of Rizzo's murder and many times before, she stood defiant. She sent out messengers for help to any still loyal to her, but none came. Rather than lay down and accept her situation, she disguised herself as a man and escaped in the night to the Black Castle at Cape Muir, where she met with Bothwell to continue their escape to Dunbar. While in hiding at Dunbar, a message came offering the promise of safety at Edinburgh Castle. Mary had come to realise that she was pregnant once more, and the importance of more heirs and her personal safety were at the front of her mind. The guns and men of Edinburgh Castle could surely withstand the rebels and keep them all safe. So wearing only clothes they had borrowed, and with 600 men behind them, they made for Edinburgh, for hope. However, this hurried offering of safety on a silver platter was yet another trap. On the 15th of June, in the warmth of summer, as they rode towards Carberry Hill to the east of Edinburgh, they were greeted by a terrible sight. An army stood before them, much bigger than their own paltry selection of men, headed by the Scottish nobility, styling themselves now as the Confederate Lords. They bore a large white banner, depicting Lord Darnley dead under a tree with the young Prince James praying at his side. But there was no action. Mary lacked the troops and the nobles lacked any kind of authority to continue. They demanded though that if Mary would leave Bothwell, end this farce of a marriage, then they would restore her to her former position, forgive her decisions. She angrily declined, and we can only fathom a guess at why she would do so. First of all, she was angry at these same nobles who had supported Bothwell's plan to marry her. Secondly, despite all of his failings, Bothwell had shown himself to be loyal to Mary, and thirdly, we can only assume it was because of her pregnancy. Mary's hatred of bloodshed and violence would once again prove to work against her. 
In exchange for Bothwell's safe passage, but not the end of their marriage, she gave herself up to the nobility. Despite everything, Bothwell offered Mary one final gift. It was the bond he had signed with Mary's nobles for the assassination of Darnley. Bothwell rode off, soon to be a fugitive from the Scottish nobles, and Mary descended into the viper's nest and further into despair. When they returned to Edinburgh, Mary found her treatment by the common people so far from what she had once known. Her marriage to Bothwell had ruined her reputation, and in their eyes she was no longer the wise and graceful queen, but a whore, and an adulteress, and a murderer. They cried out for her execution, screaming for her to be burned. Dusty and dirty, and still with only borrowed clothes, she was interred at the house of one of her nobles, alone, broken, and once again a captive of her own design. The nobles, deciding it was too risky to keep Mary in Edinburgh, ferried her to Lochleven Castle in Kinrosshire, where she found herself alone and quite sick from her pregnancy. She became despondent and descended into a state of severe illness for two weeks, to the point that many in the household thought she would die. But as she had done time and time again when illness struck her, she recovered. Beyond the nobles' desperate need for power, there were still a few reasons to keep her imprisoned. It's doubtful they knew of the bond Mary possessed, but they must have suspected she knew of their involvement in Darnley's murder and could testify to it. She was also nearing her 25th birthday. At 25, it was her birthright then to reclaim any lands or titles given out during her minority, of which many of these upstart nobles would see themselves ruined. The young Prince James and another long minority with no outright rule seemed a far better prospect for the power-hungry nobles. At some point on the 24th of July, Mary suffered from a miscarriage, she'd been carrying twins. Exhausted and suffering from severe blood loss, Mary lay in her chambers to recover. Surviving a miscarriage in those days, even with the best of physicians, was no light task, but she could barely be offered a moment's peace. While lying there, exhausted and barely able to move, the Laird of Lockleave and Lindsay came before her to ask her to sign letters of abdication. Mary, despite her weakened state, was outraged at the request. She refused. They would have to drag her from the castle by the hair in her head, but alone, without a personal guard or her usual servants, the rest of her life became obvious when Lindsay threatened to have her throat cut. She signed, abdicating the throne she'd held since she was six days old in favour of her son James, who became the King of Scotland at 13 months old. Over the next few months, Mary whiled away her time in captivity, reading what little books were brought for her, and plotting. She found in one of her jailers a confidant, in George Douglas, son of the Laird, as well as a few members of the household. In her mind, it was imperative that she escape. She must be restored to her throne. She began smuggling letters out of the castle, garnering what support she could, and by the 2nd of May 1568, Mary's plan would come to fruition. They had bribed the boatsman for passage over the lock. Mary excused herself from her chambers to pray in the tower where servants' clothes had been laid out for her, and Mary, once again disguised, walked right out of the front door with George Douglas at her side. She made the journey over Loch Leven with George Douglas at her side, and she reached the shore, mounted horses stolen from the stables, and rode off to meet the last of her supporters. Mary's half-brother, James Stewart, Earl of Moray, had taken up the regency of Scotland, and he was enraged at the news of his sister's escape, and rose an army to bring her to justice. It was her plan to avoid battle altogether. She told for a peaceful march to Dumbarton Castle, where she could see to her restoration as Queen of Scotland. Mary's abdication was not universally popular, even amongst the Protestant lords. They saw her abdication as an affront, forced under the threat of murder, and she managed to amass a following of nobles and 6,000 men to escort her to Dumbarton Castle. On the 13th of May, she reached the small village of Langside, three miles to the south of the Clyde in Glasgow, where she met with her half-brother's forces, all too ready to stop her. They were outnumbered, outgunned, and outskilled. Mary watched the battle from the grounds of Cathcart Castle. She looked on as a round of gunfire had shattered the frontline troops of her army, and as she watched the pikemen come face to face with the enemy and the outcome unclear, she mounted her horse and, like Queen Zenobia of Palmyra, ran to the front lines to rally her men. Instead, she found them squabbling over the best course of action. While the pikes clashed and the battle almost seemed to be frozen, a shift in the regent's tactics saw his men burst through Mary's army and the battle was quickly lost. 
Maury called to a halt the pursuit, and Mary and her remaining troops fled the battle, heading south for Dumfries and the borders of England. Mary's supporters had warned her not to trust Queen Elizabeth, yet it was her decision, and her decision alone, to continue into England, seeking the aid of her cousin. If anyone could mediate Mary's return to the Scottish throne, it was Elizabeth. Despite an almost guaranteed safety in France and all the estates and money owed to the Dowager Queen, I wonder if she even considered it an option. I think she was determined to get her throne back, but whatever romantic ideal she held in the friendship of her cousin, they would soon betray her. Three days later, on the 16th of May, Mary was in disguise once more. She had shorn her glorious red hair and cloaked and hooded crossed to England on a small fishing boat with just a handful of her nobles, landing at Workington Castle. After writing to Elizabeth and resting at the castle, Mary was taken into protective custody at Carlisle. She was optimistic about this risky venture. She believed she would return to Scotland with an army no later than August. Whether that army came from the English or the French, she did not know, but she believed she would have one. Whether she was aware of it or not, Mary's idealistic flight into England had left Elizabeth between a rock and a hard place. She as a Protestant could hardly raise arms against Scotland in aid of her Catholic cousin, yet if she did nothing, there was nothing to stop Mary from rallying her French allies to do the same, not least against Elizabeth. Elizabeth instead would play the role of diplomat and acquiesce to her cousin's request in as vague a fashion as possible. She ordered an inquiry into the conduct of the Scottish nobles and went so far as to arrange a conference at York to take place between October 1568 and January 1569. Mary was not allowed to attend and representatives were sent in her stead. She spent her time at Bolton Castle, far enough away from both London and Scottish borders to ensure any nighttime escapes that Mary was so well known for could be avoided. It was at this conference that the infamous casket letters were brought as evidence against Mary by her half-brother Maury. Found in a silver gilded casket purported to bear the initials of Mary's first husband Francis, the unsigned letters were supposedly between Mary and Bothwell, implicating her in the murder of Lord Darnley. She denied them as forgeries, the very idea was outrageous. They had in fact been in the possession of the Scottish nobles since 1567, when Mary was still in captivity at Lochleven Castle, and there are two schools of thought on why they were never brought forward as a means to justify her imprisonment. The first being that they contained real evidence against Mary, and they were being saved for just such an occasion. The second being that they were indeed complete forgeries and the time was necessary to create them convincingly. I fall into the latter category. Mary held in her possession the means to undo those nobles who had held her captive, namely the bond of the murder of Darnley, but it was a card she never played. They would need something equally convincing to discredit her. Despite this damning evidence against Mary that most present at the conference felt as complete proof against her, no one was found guilty not Mary and not the Confederate Lords of Scotland. They were allowed to return home to Scotland and Mary would stay behind to spend the next 17 years of her life as a captive of the English Crown. Whatever can be said of Mary's captivity, it was not a wholly uncomfortable one. She was afforded fine clothes once more, a household of 30 staff as well as fine furnishings for the castles in which she would be living as a prisoner. To Mary, a life of forced leisure would never be enough. She was now in the heart of England, and imprisoned or not, she was determined to do something about it. In 1571, Mary entered into negotiations to marry the Duke of Norfolk. After three disastrous marriages, it's easy to understand that she was wary of this idea. She only followed suit on the word of her advisers that Elizabeth in fact supported the idea and all involved viewed her marriage to Bothwell in effect null. Mary even wrote for papal recognition to assure her that her marriage to Bothwell was nothing more than a flash in the pan. All the while, Mary had been writing to Spain for aid in restoring her throne. Mary was seeking an honourable exit from captivity rather than involvement in a life or death plot, but a life or death plot it became. Norfolk seized on the momentum and sought to place himself and Mary on the throne of England with the help of the Spanish, a Catholic military coup against Elizabeth and he with his new queen on the throne of England. But the plot was uncovered by Sir Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's chief secretary, 
and Elizabeth flew into a furious rage at her cousin. Mary maintained her innocence, that she only sought to marry Norfolk as she believed it was her cousin's intentions. Norfolk was executed, and Mary would find herself forced even further into captivity, with all hope of help from her cousin completely extinguished. Not only that, the English Parliament passed a bill stating that Mary could never inherit the English throne, and thus Mary's quest was well and truly over. Her personal fortunes dashed by this plot, Mary truly now reserved herself to a life of quiet captivity. She began openly reciting her memoirs to her secretaries, lamenting on her marriages and losing that sense of determination and purpose that she was so well known for. She was never allowed to leave the grounds of whichever palace she was held at. She would take short walks on the grounds and spend her days reading on English history. As the years passed, her health waned, her hair became thin and lost its beautiful red colour, and she would be all but lost to the country she once ruled and the son she never knew. But she would be no stranger to plots during her time in captivity. During this time of religious turbulence, with a Protestant on the throne of England, there would be papal plots and other attempts on Elizabeth's life. With the uncovering of the Throckmorton plot in 1583, one of many to murder Elizabeth and place Mary on the throne, Sir Francis Walsingham introduced the act for the Queen's safety. It stated that anyone, especially Mary, be found to be actively involved in a plot against Elizabeth that they would be executed. His suspicion of Mary never faltered. In 1572, Walsingham witnessed firsthand the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France and cited by her Guise uncles and it certainly had a hand in how he viewed Mary from then on. By 1586, Mary was in a desperately dark place. She had spent 18 years in English captivity. Her son, now King of Scotland in his own right, believed her to be a murderer and an adulteress and chose Elizabeth over her. Her health was failing her. She suffered from rheumatism and joint pain due to her long confinement, and in that dark place, Mary's old spark of determination set alight the fires of a dangerous and deadly plot. Like all of the plots before it, the Babington plot was an attempt to assassinate Elizabeth and place Mary on the throne with the support of a Spanish invasion. She developed in secret an elaborate codex. In a carefully coded letter, Mary agreed to the Spanish invasion, the murder of her cousin and the restoration of the old religion and it would be this fatal piece of correspondence that would be the end of her. Sir Francis Walsingham had placed a traitor in her midst who ultimately betrayed her. She was convicted of treason in October at Fotheringay Castle and sentenced to death. She would spend the next few months imprisoned at Fotheringay Castle in an almost pleasant state. It was remarked that in all their years, her household had never seen her so calm, reserved and peaceful. Mary didn't seem to fear the execution that awaited her. She actually viewed herself as something of a martyr, the last of the royal bloodlines of Scotland and England to be a Catholic. As she wrote her final letters to those few left in her life, she heard the pounding in the hall below her of the stage being erected for her execution. If she was ever aware of the tragic nature for which her life would be known, it was now. She wrote, I think they are making a scaffold to make me play the last scene of the tragedy. She spent her last few hours of life in prayer, distributing her possessions amongst her household and would write a final letter to her brother-in-law, the King of France. And on that morning of the 8th of February 1587, Mary was taken down to the room below her own where, as she had heard months before, a grand stage had been built, surrounded by black velvet curtains. There were over 300 spectators gathered there, and in these final moments she did not appear old, frail or ill, but tall, graceful and as elegant as she had when she first arrived in Scotland 25 years before. She faced her death with courage and solemnity, and as the charges were brought to her, her expression never changed. She prayed aloud for her cousin, for her son, and for the Catholic Church in England. As was custom, the executioner asked forgiveness of Mary, to which she replied, I forgive you with all my heart, for now I hope you bring an end to my troubles. She was helped to disrobe. Underneath her long black gown, she wore a red petticoat, red being the colour of martyrdom in the Catholic Church. While those from her household cried and prayed for her, she never faltered in her composure and expression, reassuring them that her troubles would soon be over. A white blindfold was tied about her head. She kneeled down, placed her head on the block, spread her arms wide and said, 
Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. I want to thank you for listening through what must be a thoroughly long time for a podcast. Believe me, there is so much more to be said on the story of Mary, and I'll come back to her at some point. But for now, however you may have thought of Mary, I'd like you to think of a woman who, despite everything, despite the power politics of the men in her life, despite the tragic circumstances she so often found herself in, that Mary was very much her own woman. She was neither a pawn nor a puppet. She was a determined and fierce woman who, in the end, gave too much of herself to those around her and lost everything in the process. Thank you so much for listening to Yas Queen. Episode 2 will begin a multi-part series on the women of the Special Operations Executive, beginning with Noor and Ayat Khan.